In 2019, Lovesack was the fastest growing furniture company in America. The company started with a giant foam-filled bag, but has since expanded to become a publicly traded company on NASDAQ, selling in the hundreds of millions. Today, we talk with the founder of Lovesack about how the company likely never would have gotten off the ground if it hadn't been for the fact that he could read Mandarin, a language he had learned a few years earlier as a Latter-day Saint missionary. Sean Nelson founded Lovesack in 1998 and currently serves as the company's CEO and a member of its board of directors. In 2005, Sean won Richard Branson's reality television show The Rebel Billionaire on Fox and continues to participate in ongoing TV appearances. Sean has a master's degree in strategic design and management. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so excited to have Sean Nelson with me today. Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation. I had the chance to have a phone conversation with Sean last week and have been looking forward to this ever since. So Sean, thank you so much for being willing. And I'm wondering if we could just start out by having you quickly summarize for those who are not familiar with your story, the beginning of your company, Lovesack. Sure. The whole thing started really 25 years ago, 1995. (laughs) I was 18 years old, watching The Price is Right, bored out of my mind, 10 days out of high school, sitting on my parents' couch, eating a bowl of Captain Crunch. And I had this dumb idea, like, how funny would that be to make a beanbag like this big, you know, me to the TV, like the whole floor. And I got off the couch, uh, drove down to Joanne's Fabrics on 33rd South in Salt Lake City, Utah, and bought seven yards of tan and black vinyl and cut it up and sewed it into a baseball kind of pattern. And my girlfriend's mom, I think, helped me finish it because my sewing skills were limited to my seventh grade home ec level. Anyway, put a zipper in it, began stuffing it with, I couldn't buy enough of those beanbag beads, you know, from Michael's Crafts or whatever. And so I looked around the house and found my parents packing peanuts from their Melaleuca business, you know, old mattresses, (laughs) those foam pads we go camping on with a bungee cord around them, you know, chop them up on a paper cutter, like in strips, you know, the kind you chop paper in straight lines with and then turn them the other way and into squares. And anyway, that was the best stuff. And if only I could find more of that and old blankets, whatever. So three weeks later, finally have this thing kind of stuffed. We'd take it to the drive-in movies. We'd take it camping. Everywhere we took it, everybody wants one. They're like, that's the coolest thing you know, because there were five or six of us on this thing in the back of a truck, whatever. And anyway, fast forward that year, turned 19 that winter, went on a mission for for our church and uh, was called to Taiwan. An amazing opportunity, learned Mandarin Chinese, spent two years uh, teaching the people in Taiwan and doing service and all those great things and got really great at the language, you know, worked extra hard to learn how to read and write and do all the, you know, take it to the next level. And anyway, came back two years later, having forgotten about this thing, wasn't yet called a love sack. It was just this giant, not beanbag thing. And, (laughs) and I was going to the university of Utah dating again, getting back into real life. And my friends were going to the drive-in movies. I said, Oh my gosh, I have this thing. And we pulled it out of the garage. We started using it and everyone wants one again. So kind of uh, three or four months later, 
My neighbors had seen me drive up and down the street with so many times. They kept bugging me to make them one. I said, okay, 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 I'll make you one. But if I'm going to do that, then, you know, I got to charge you. So now I need a company. Now I need a name. And it was like love, peace, hate, war, hippie, beanbag, love bag, love sack. Oh, that's cool. Paid 25 bucks at Utah State Tax Commission. Registered the name Love Sack in 1998 and we were off to the races. So this was a side hustle in college as I went to the University of Utah studying Chinese and business. And after a few years of that, actually had the opportunity to move back to China, took an internship in Shanghai, China, uh, put the put the Love Sack away. Although my friends who were helping me run the business at the time kind of kept things going on a trickle while I was in China working again, using my language as a management training consultant. Came back again in 2001 to finish my last semester of school. Was going to close the little company down because it never made any money. You know, it was us in a van selling these things to friends and family and their friends. And we were manufacturing them out of the back of this furniture company down, down in uh, downtown Salt Lake City where um, they let us use this foam shredder thing. It's really a grain grinder they had for years and we got it working and that kind of made the business. But we were going to wind it down because it never made money and, and I had this job waiting for me back in China, like my dream job, speaking Chinese, traveling all over the country in China. And so finishing up that last semester, we gave it one last shot because everyone we, we told we were going to close Love Sack down, they said, no, you can't close Love Sack. So we, we took it to a trade show, got discovered by the Limited Two, now known as Justice, little girl's store in the mall. They wanted 12,000 little love sacks for Christmas. They placed the order sight unseen, not realizing it was me and some buddies and like a grain grinder, kind of like a wood chipper shredding foam out of the back room of this furniture factory. And, but it was a 12,000 piece order. So they FedExed me this piece of blue fuzzy fabric with little silver specks and it said, it has to be this fabric. It has to be super cheap, you know, 12,000 units. So I, I flew off to North Carolina to find the fabric. I found it. I, I couldn't afford it, couldn't meet their price. And I'm looking around this, this fabric booth at the biggest fabric show in the country. And this guy's got all these fabric samples behind him in these boxes. And I'm about to give up, by the way, thinking, look, I'm a college student. I'm, I'm a waiter. I'm waiting tables every night, paying my way through <laughs> college. I have no business buying 30,000 yards of fabric and no money either. But uh, he said, you know, I'm a direct importer. You're not going to get any cheaper. But there's this, there are these boxes with Chinese writing on them behind him. And of course I can, I can read it. And, uh, it was the address of the fabric mill that makes this blue fuzzy fabric, with little silver specks in it. So I couldn't give up now. I got, I got, I credit carded my way to Shanghai, China, walked in the 32nd floor downtown office of this, uh, fabric mills, you know, sales headquarters. And I said, hi, I, in English, I said, hi, I'm Sean. I'm here for the limited two. I need 30,000 yards of this stuff. They said, yeah, no problem. It's five bucks a yard. I said, no, 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 no. I need it for like half that. And they start talking amongst themselves in Chinese about how much it costs to make this stuff. So I knew that they could hit my price. I knew they could do it, right? Because I'm sitting there listening and they would just talk right in front of me. And, and anyway, finally, after two or three days of negotiation, got it, the price down to where it needed to be. They were going to cut them and sew them and ship them to me with you know, our logo on them. And I had to stuff them. So I flew back to the United States, credit carded you know, our way into this, in, into this old factory having twisted uh, you know, my client's arm to give us a $65,000 deposit to get started on the order from China. And anyway, we were off to the races. So let's fast forward. Um, got that order done. It was it, That's a whole story into itself. It was messy and difficult and crazy and hard. On the heels of that, no other companies wanted to buy our stuff. They just, you know, I hadn't been out selling. I had been in the factory trying to get this order out. So we scrambled before Christmas. All of the furniture 
companies in, in, you know, the West, RC Willie, American furniture, these big furniture companies, people know rejected us, thought it was stupid. Our name was stupid. Our product was too expensive, too big, whatever. So we opened our own store at the Gateway Mall in Salt Lake City, who originally rejected us, not knowing that, you know, I mean, just presuming we were just a uh, uh, fake little company, but they let us fill a space in their mall over Christmas and the Winter Olympics. It just exploded. We couldn't believe it. People were buying these things right off the floor at the Gateway Mall and the company grew and we began franchising and it's just a crazy story up through, you know, five, 10, 20 locations. We moved our factory to Mexico. I lived in Mexico. So actually I met my wife while I was living there back in Salt Lake visiting our headquarters in Salt Lake at some Love Sack event, introduced to her. She was a U of U student. I was already graduated. Somehow started a family right through all of this. And then, you know, just when we were at another roadblock needing venture capital to grow the business past like 20 locations, I was invited to participate on this reality TV show. And this was with Richard Branson, kind of like The Apprentice. And uh, Richard Branson, quest for the best, 16 contestants fly around the world, do these business challenges, Fox, primetime, reality TV, fast forward, you know, past 11 episodes, and I won. I won a million dollar investment on TV. I was made Richard Branson's sidekick, his president of Virgin Worldwide. I traveled the world working with his CEOs, even as we're trying to get Lovesack funded. We raised venture capital. They had the bright idea to chapter 11 our business, which was painful and ugly and embarrassing. So we could emerge with with no bad locations. We started over with fewer locations. We actually relocated the company to Connecticut. I moved my, 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 well, my wife out there. We had all of our kids over the next 10 years in Connecticut as we grew the business on venture capital up through private equity to where it is today, 90 locations. We're now a public company doing hundreds of millions in business, having invented this really cool couch product. And, uh, you know, I'm in my 40s. I have four children from the ages of, you know, 12 to six. And we're now living in St. George, Utah, because my wife's family kind of migrated here from Salt Lake in the time we were in Connecticut for 11 years and uh, wanting to be closer to them. And now I commute back and forth. So long, crazy ride. Somehow, stayed active as a member of this church all the way through, through thick and thin, the highest highs, the lowest, ugliest lows. And uh, it's been an amazing adventure. Yeah. Well, Sean, I've been taking some notes as you've been talking because I want to make sure that I hit all of the important parts here. So let's go back for just a second to your ability to speak Mandarin. Okay. You, it's amazing to me that you saw that on a box and were able to read it and then follow it. And then that that ability to speak Mandarin served you all the way through in in developing this company. So I'm I'm interested. Many entrepreneurs have talked about the benefit of serving a mission in the entrepreneurial world, and I think many times it's because they're not afraid of rejection. We're used to knocking on doors. We're used to te- people telling us no. But what role has your mission played for you as an entrepreneur, and how? What kind of gratitude? do you have toward that experience, especially in its ability to teach you Mandarin or give you an opportunity to learn that? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously in my case, the language uh, has been pivotal and it continues to be, you know, and 
it's kind of a funny story how Mandarin's Chinese, the ability to speak or, or at least listen to it, right, played into the actual creation of this company. Without it, I don't think it would have happened. It certainly wouldn't have happened the way it happened because we began sourcing overseas at a very, very early stage, right? Like way earlier than most companies could ever dream of because of that. I was not afraid to operate over there. I was not afraid to fly over there. I was not afraid to you know, try to do business over there, even though I used English at first. And by the way, one of the funniest moments was a year later, we had now done millions of dollars in business with that supplier that we started with. And uh, over a steak one night when he was visiting in the United States, I, in my best, you know, Chinese said to him, you know, you know that I speak Mandarin, right? And I said it, I had to say it almost like two or three times because it caught him so off guard because we had always spoken (laughs) English and I could just see the last year of his life, like rewinding in his mind, like, oh my gosh, what have I said in front of this guy? And so, you know, funny story on the language for sure. I think it you know it goes so much deeper than that though to your point you know being a missionary trains you in a hundred other ways just makes you tough you have to live in a strange place at a young age and 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 do it on your own and I think there's something extremely powerful in that and, and you're not a tourist you know you're not there for two two weeks or two months I mean it's a long chunk of time at the you know at the time it's a tenth of your life. And so it's a huge blessing. And, and, I, and, you know, it's funny, missionaries, I mean, that the blessing is the mission. The blessing is the experience. And, uh, you know, I, I, sadly, I, I worry that I took a lot more than I probably ever gave because it, it blessed my life in so many ways, teaching you independence, teaching you mental toughness, teaching you how to get along, you know, even with people you, you don't necessarily wouldn't choose to get along with. All of these things matter in business and in relationship building, languages, things like that. And, you know, the language is is a lot more than just like, oh, I speak Mandarin, I can do business. To be honest with you, you can do just fine in business speaking English. But it's really about building relationships. So the combination of, of, you know, the things you learn on your mission overtly, how to build relationships of trust, to coin a phrase, combined with the opportunity to speak someone's language and get to know them intimately. I'm the only client of most of our my suppliers in Asia that they can even be friends with. They can they've sent their kids to me for the summer for internships because we have that kind of trust and and everyone everyone else to them is just a you know a white guy doing business. And I'm uh you know I'm a personal friend of theirs. And and so when push comes to shove and you need millions of dollars of support at different times in your, you know, at least in in, in my evolution as a business person you need someone to take a risk and just say, look, I'll, I'll pay you later, whatever it may be. That's really where the language and, and frankly, forget the language, relationships matter. And for me, the language has fostered those relationships and, and that all came from the mission. Absolutely. I think that's so interesting and such a good point that you touched on. Sometimes we underestimate the value of somebody just feeling like you're their friend and that you have gone out of your way in the past to be a friend. But I think sometimes we don't think about the fact that to have a friend, you have to be a friend and and to cultivate those relationships. Sean, another thing that I wanted to touch on, you mentioned that your family was just getting started in the middle of all of this. And I wondered what what you would say. I feel like some people may feel like, well, I can't have it all and I want to, I can only, you know, focus on a career. I only have a limited window to 
build a career. And I'm wondering what you would say to someone in that position, maybe trying to weigh out is is starting a family worth it and doable in that phase of a of a startup? And how has that decision blessed your life? Yeah, you know, I have a number of friends who maybe intentionally, I'm not sure, or unintentionally, you know, put it off and put it off for a long time. And in fact, in some ways, you know, I've, I've, from afar, uh, I wouldn't say been jealous of them, but I've, I've been able to appreciate the idea that, you know, cause they've made a ton of money and had a lot of success without all of the, they've been able to put in the hours and have the freedom to sort of do that. And, and now, you know, but you know, the struggle that they went through as they face the uncertainty of not having, I'm sure that they maybe watched me from afar and, and maybe felt, you know, some uh, envy about, you know, the opportunity to have kids and, and, and do that at a young age and whatnot. And now they're thankfully having children and, you know, they've already kind of made it. And, and I feel like I've kind of struggled for two decades with business and with, you know, family, of course, but that's life. And I, I think my, my best advice would be, um, listen, so on the, it comes back to, <laughs> something that I live by and, and I've even, you know, spoken to with my oldest children and they know this phrase. It's kind of one of my, I'll call it Seanisms. Um, on the back of my wedding ring, you know, the inscription reads, everything else is dust. And there are, you know, six black diamonds in my wedding ring and it's been remade, you know, as I've gotten older and, and appreciated this phrase, but, um, you know, we're representing the six people in my family my immediate family. And it's a reminder, you know, I mean, I love stuff. I, you know, I love the pursuit of, you know, success and whatever, but it's all just dust, all of it, everything. And the only thing that's not is frankly family. And so I think that it, 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 it can't be and shouldn't be put off it, you know, for really any reason. I think there is a path to success, even with, you know, the, the difficulties of managing, relationships and marriages and children. And I think that we're expected to rise up to that, you know? And so, and by the way, sometimes it can't be sped up. Sometimes people's timeline is just different and, and it takes some time before they're able to find a companion or, or have children. And that's okay too, I think, but being, being open-minded and being honest with our intentions of of always putting what matters first, no matter how painful it is overall, you know, and look, there's days and, and periods of time where, you know, you have to dig in and work hard and focus and, and I'm away from home quite a bit when traveling, you know, so there's, there's moments where that's the reality, but you, where is your intention? Is your intention to always overall put that first? If that's the case, then things will fall as they may. And, uh, you know, you'll be blessed in one way or another. It doesn't matter. We're all going to end up in the same place anyway, you know? And so we try and have success on this earth and, and, and whatnot. But in the end, it doesn't even really matter. Everything yeah. else is dust. You know, and as much as we can feed our family, we can get by and get through it without sacrificing our, you know, what matters most, then, then who cares? Yeah. So well said. Thank you. I Another thing I want to touch on is you mentioned that you have experienced some pretty serious highs and lows over the course of your career. Um, and you, you mentioned at one point having to file for bankruptcy. Is that right? 
Yeah. So not me personally, but my business and my business at the time, listen, I had just, I had just won a reality TV show. I was a, at least a Utah celebrity for a minute. Right. (laughs) And people knew my face and my name. And I was on the cover of a lot of different magazines and whatever on TV all the time, radio. And then on the next thing, you know, love sack is, you know, chapter 11. And And look, it was the right move at the time at least in one playbook of our venture capitalists. I mean, it's arguable there were other ways to handle things. But it was embarrassing and demoralizing and public and also hard. You know, uh, a Chapter 11 reorganization is is like I called it my MBA in a box, you know. I mean, it really is a hard thing to manage through because you you don't go away. You You manage through it and you reorganize the business and you emerge stronger. And that's what we did. And we did it successfully. But talk about embarrassing. And I was married at the time and my wife and we had no children and she just, we just muscled through it together. And it wasn't, certainly wasn't without issue and wasn't easy on us, on um, me, on her, but here we are, you know? Yeah. I wonder, Sean, how would you say, so I think that many times when we're going through these really low points, that's when we really turn to God and recognize the the Lord helping us. So my first question, this is twofold. First question is, how has the gospel helped you in those low times? And then second part is, how do you make the gospel a focus when things are going really well? Because I think sometimes that's the even harder part. Yeah, I mean, whenever things get hard, you you really obviously do see you know, where your instincts are. And I think people either turn a way to find solace or find comfort or find, you know, some kind of distraction or they turn toward it. Obviously, you know, I think we need to try to make those decisions ahead of time that will turn toward it and turn, you know, to the Lord for help as opposed to finding, you know, distraction in other ways, the world's ways. I think that like you were saying, I think you already, we already talked about it on this call, building relationships ahead of times because nothing's more annoying than, you know, the person who you haven't heard from in years all of a sudden hitting you up because they want some kind of discount or some kind of whatever. <laughs> but if, if, you know, you have an active relationship with that person, then it's natural to want to help them. And I think the same is true in, in, in a pretty, parallel way with our relationship with God. And it's not to say he doesn't always love us no matter what, of course, but our ability to get spiritual and temporal help in the times we need it most comes from the strength of that relationship in times of peace, let's call it. And that's the hardest thing to do, you know? And I just think that comes back to just a little bit of discipline and habit. The things that I teach my children, you know, let the first thing that hits the floor in the morning, be your knees and dumb habits. Like, and when I say dumb, I mean, because they're simple, like we can wake up and grab our phone and turn off the alarm and then start looking at Instagram where we can, how cool is it that we can, I'm going to be really specific. You know, you can lay there on your side or on your back and now read the scriptures, you know, it's, it's backlit. It's a, it's a touch away. (laughs) It's, I mean, you know, before, you know, I used to wake up freezing in the, in the, believe it or not, humid mornings of Taiwan at 5 a.m. to do that scripture study. And isn't it cool that we can now just do it in the comfort of our bed, you know? And that's dumb, but it's like the little things like that 
that that allow that underlying you know heartbeat of our testimony to be strong enough to pull us through all the times the good and the bad and i just am a firm believer that we just have to stay a little bit vigilant it doesn't have to consume you but it ha- you have to stay vigilant yeah such such a good example and i think it is it's like such a little thing but how many days do i catch myself just scrolling instagram and then i'm like what the heck are you doing morg like Right. Like start start reading your scriptures. Do something well, we that actually matters. Do. And we yeah. all do. But you know, I think that we live at a time where it's never been easier if we if we just make a few choices. It's just a little bit of discipline to keep those you know testimonies, uh, keep those embers alive. You know. Yeah, beautifully said. Another thing that I loved checking out as I was prepping for this interview is your vlog. And you really have opened your world up to anyone who wants to watch on YouTube, which I think is super cool. I wondered, why has it been important to open your life up in that way? Why did you want to do that? And have you felt that you've had an opportunity in any way, shape, or form to share the gospel through your your business, your entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, thanks. You know, I'm a creature of instinct. I follow my instincts. And and I and as the internet and all of this social media had been evolving over the last few years, I came across vlogging as a thing and and I flirted with the idea of it. It just seems so weird. And look, it hasn't been some amazing success in the fact that, you know, it's not like I have amassed some huge following and I make money on my YouTube channel. I'm not even interested in making money on my YouTube channel. But one day I just started doing it. I thought about it for a year or two. And, and, you know, my, my whole, in fact, the vlog is called Get Off the Couch. And the book I'm writing is called Get Off the Couch. Because as I told you in my story, none of this would have happened if when I had that idea for the giant beanbag in my head, I hadn't got off the couch right then, drove down to the fabric store, bought the fabric. So that's my kind of life ethos, right, on this earth. And so I got off the couch. I started making a vlog one day. I did it every day for almost a year. I edited it myself every day. And it was exhausting. And I just kind of did it because I felt like I should. And that's, by the way, the reason I kept doing Love Sack in all those years when it was just in my parents' basement. My mom would ask me. She'd come down and see me on my hands and knees, cutting out fabric, knowing that I could make more money doing this or that. And then, by the way, hanging it up and waiting tables till 11 at night to actually pay my way through school. And she said, why are you doing this? And I said, I just feel like I should. So I've always followed my sort of just gut instincts started making a vlog. And and the answer is, I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'll tell you a few interesting outcomes. Like I said, it's not about being commercially successful. I don't care. But, you know, one, it's it's turned out that, yeah, people watch it. And and I I get evidence of that all the time on my social media. People direct DM me or whatever and mention things that are very personal. And And I don't hold back. Like I talk about my religion. I talk about my family. You know, I just talk about what I believe. I I don't filter too much to the good or the bad. I just kind of let it roll. And most of it's focused on entrepreneurship and whatever, but it's just my life. And, and, and now it's a, you know more focused on my philosophy and, and stuff like that. But my point is, it's turned out to be an interesting recruiting tool for Lovesack because people get an unfiltered view into like what a company looks like on the inside and what the founder or the CEO behaves like. And that, of course, influences the culture. So I think and maybe it's turned people off. And by the way, I'm, I'm happy about that. I don't want people to come to my company 
who don't want to be in this kind of company or environment or this kind of leadership because they're not going to be happy anyway. I don't want them to find that out a year later. At the same time, I want to attract people that do fit into our culture or can you know abide by, by my leadership or whatever. And so that's been an interesting thing. And another interesting outcome, you know, I had someone and it's and it's because listen, it's really it doesn't matter if I affect millions. It like a mission, it it only matters if I can affect one or 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 a few. And I had someone just recently who actually actually does work for me mention one of my vlogs that um in and specifically something I had said in it that that changed his whole life according to him and, and the way he behaves and the way he thinks about it. And it was really the thing where I was talking about how my personal belief, of course it stems from my religion, is that, you know, sometimes there's too much emphasis placed on children, you know, in a, in a marriage, like in the sense that, oh, I love my kids, you know, and that's the best part, as if to infer like I put up with my wife. And I believe that when you have the blessing of the knowledge of eternal families and eternal marriage, you know, the thing that matters most is this one person who was a stranger and is not a blood relative, who you actually will be the person, I'm going to say it crassly, you're stuck with the rest of eternity. And so that's the, that is the relationship that matters the most. And by the way, your children will go on to be somebody else's stranger and eternal companion. And, and, and so it's kind of weird. And so my point is not that I don't love my children, but my point is, is that that is an example where the world's way of approaching things and the world's good beliefs are not always the same as the better or the best beliefs or understanding of what's true and eternal. And, 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 and those truths then can resonate with anyone, member or non-member, and I think when applied, affect them for the good. And so the opportunity to share that in a way that wasn't even religious overtly. I wasn't really pontificating on religion as much as I was just what I believe. Obviously it's rooted in my, in my religion, in my testimony. And to have, to have a person tell me that it's changed their family, it's, it's preserved their relationship. It's changed everything. I mean, for me, like that makes the whole year. And now it's been now many years of editing and, and, and dealing with a vlog, which is a very taxing sort of, uh, side hustle for me um (laughs) worth it all of it to me and if it never does anything else it was worth it and and i think maybe what about the people that i don't know about that maybe have gleaned something useful from it and and so that's you know something that's been very satisfying for me yeah so cool um my last question before we get to our last question so second to last question is what advice would you give to other aspiring entrepreneurs maybe specifically within our faith yeah the advice i would give to you know aspiring entrepreneurs um particularly those who share our faith is always to to go for it with an asterisk. Okay. It's easy to say that. Like my overall thesis uh, philosophy, as you know, is get off the couch. You have an idea, get up, like get off the couch, make the beanbag. And uh, you know, you don't have to, I did not commit to love sack as my future until I had been, been running love sack for like five years. It was a side hustle. It was something I just did. And uh, like, same thing with the vlog. By the way, maybe the vlog will turn into something bigger. I don't know. 
but it's okay if it if it doesn't and it's okay if it does but i got off the couch i started making the vlog i got off the couch started making the beanbag so i'm a big proponent of just taking action people talk 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 oh i have this idea and you don't have to go do it all but do something that's my number one shaunism do something get off the couch do you know make the beanbag see where you know see where it goes and and let and it's okay to just slow play stuff um, it's okay not to, you know, leap off a cliff in order to see if you can fly. Just, just start, you know, getting close to the edge maybe or whatever, you know? So, so do something, but at the same time, you know, the asterisk I would provide is, um, twofold. One, follow your instincts to the good and the bad, you know, in the sense like you may be getting promptings or, or you know, uh, feeling instincts to, to, to not pursue something for whatever reason, you know? Or, and, and the other thing is the second asterisk is not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Like everyone has good ideas just because you have a good idea or or an interesting thought doesn't mean you're cut out or that you should be an entrepreneur. If everyone was an entrepreneur, then I wouldn't have anyone helping me build this company. And I need hundreds of people to help, help this company be what it, and this, I need, I want this company to serve, to succeed, not just obviously for my own financial success. I mean, I really think that Lovesack brings something great to the world. We have this design philosophy called Design for Life, which is all about sustainability, which is totally unique to what we're doing that we evolved into over time. My point is, is that all of this good can come from many, many people contributing. So you don't have to be an entrepreneur to, to be a success. You could join or support an entrepreneur, you know, like me or, or someone who happens to have that makeup and help them be a success as long as it's something worthwhile and useful and good and has a purpose. And, and I think sometimes entrepreneurs are sadly so celebrated and so venerated that we all like kind of aspire to that, but we got to be honest with ourselves. Is it for the right reason? And, and are, are, are we, do we, do we have kind of, you know, the makeup to, to be successful in that way? Or might we be more successful as on someone's team? And I think both should be equally celebrated and, and um, respected. Yeah. So this is, your answer is fascinating to me because it kind of goes counter to what I would have thought, which is probably why I'm not an entrepreneur. But I, I think I would have thought that you like need to commit 100% to an idea, but rather you're saying it's good to kind of just dip your foot in and try different things. So that's kind of the opposite of the idea of going all in, right? No, there (laughs) will be a point. And the point came for me where I had to go all in. And I I, I waited. In fact, I met the guy who made the neon sign for the Gateway store location on my last day of waiting tables. Uh, you know, six months before, which was the day that I opened my factory to make that order for that big client. In other words, like I, I, I leapt off that. There came a moment in time where I had to go all in, both feet, no turning back. And I've never had a safety net since. I've never had a side hustle, you know, I, a real estate side career, yeah. whatever once I made that decision. But my point is I didn't make that decision until I was many years into love sack as a thing. So whether you all right. go all in on day one, there is an all in point and you'll somehow know when that is, but I'm saying it's okay if it, 
and it's okay if it never comes. It's okay if you, if you, it would have been okay if I closed up Love Sack and didn't pursue it. And I almost did that a hundred different times. Yeah. And I still could have had a great life and a great kids and a great family. And, and by the way, it doesn't even matter. But now I'm doing this and I'm going to make it great and, and it will be a good force in the world. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's cool because the point that you made that it still would have been, it would have been fine if you had decided not to. And I think sometimes we don't recognize that even those things that maybe don't end up being some big thing can teach us a ton. And you would have learned a ton up to that point. So I love that. And again, it's so like, it's so interesting to hear your perspective and to, because I've talked to friends who have entrepreneurial ideas and I just, I never know which avenue to encourage. And so this is like really, really helpful for me to hear. My last question for you, Sean, is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I mean, I love the question about being all in. And I, and I think for me, it's about being honest. It's about being honest with yourself. And I, sadly, I think people, and not just with the religion, not just with the gospel, but in many things in life, same thing with their businesses, they apply, they apply like, uh, other people's, uh, other people's way of doing things or, or they apply maybe the lens from which they think they're viewed by others as the measure for their, um, commitment or the measure for their success in the gospel or, uh, in business or in life. My point is, as I think that we all know when we are honestly, you know, kind of doing our best or making an effort at least. Um, we all know when we're kind of living in a shady way or, or maybe just in a lazy way. And I think as long as we're being, you know, we, it's like people want to, people, we live with all this guilt as LDS people sometimes, you know, as, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we sometimes feel guilt if we're not going to the temple enough and we're not reading the scriptures enough. And, and by the way, that, that guilt's fine. Having a little bit of, you know, um, motivation to do better is a good thing. I think, I think it will drive you to do better. But at the same time, it can also just eat you alive. And so I just think recognizing that a little bit of guilt helps you work a little harder, but not letting it consume you and giving yourself a break. Just being honest with yourself. You know, are you, are you, like I said, are you, are you trying? Are you, are you generally kind of waking up and saying your prayers and making an effort to read your scriptures? And by the way, if you, if you skipped a few days or you skipped a week, you know, just move on, you know, get off the couch. Like, as I say, start today and do a little more and, you know, and, and I think if we just are honest with ourselves, the combination of, of a little bit of guilt and a lot of just unconditional love for ourselves as the heavenly father would offer to us. And also for those around us, like be a little easier on people. You know, we're also hard on everybody. We're also critical of everybody for everything. It's like, let's just be easy with ourselves, easy with others and honest, you know, and, and even if, even if we slip a little bit, if we're honestly trying to, to get back on track, 
I think that's okay. And I think we'll make it just fine. And I think that um, we can be a little bit uh, happier, easier on ourselves, easier on others, but still active in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and progressing. And as long as we're progressing, we're not going backwards. And I think that that's okay. And for me, that's, that's being all in. Very well said. Thank you so much, Sean. And thank you for giving of your time and sharing your thoughts. They've been incredibly enlightening for me. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. A huge thank you to Sean Nelson for joining us on today's episode. And thank you to each and every one of you for your support of this podcast. We also can't forget to thank our buddy Derek Campbell from Mit66 Studios for making us sound good. We will look forward to being with you again next week. But in the meantime, please stay healthy, everyone.